your friends at Relay FM. Brought to you this week by HelpSpot. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I am joined as always by my fellow host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, Jason. It's good to be back. It's back. We are back. We are not the same table this time. No. That's true. That's true. It was just the last episode when we were together. We are back in our respective crew yes, quarters. We have returned to our, our neutral our neutral corners. <laughs> And uh, yes, exactly. So we have a really special episode lined up today. But first, we've got a couple items of pre-flight checklists to deal with. Of course. Uh, The first is a story about uh, the Antares cargo rocket. You may remember, I think it was two years ago, they had a rather spectacular failure uh, at launch. It was only like the fourth or fifth time they had flown the Antares rocket and they uh, lost the vehicle, lost the cargo, and they've been grounded for two years. And it's looking now that their return to flight will be in mid-October. It's coming up here in just a couple of weeks. It's really a fascinating story. You know, th- this rocket is is built by uh, Orbital ATK. They handle a lot of work for a lot of different people. Um, this this job is going to fly one of the Cygnus cargo ships. We spoke about Cygnus when they when NASA had their how does fire work in space test? They did it inside of Cygnus. So it's right. one of those uncrewed, it's basically a shipping container to the International Space Station, is how I like to think about it. Right. And it's supposed to lift off between the 9th and the 13th of August in Virginia. So we'll keep an eye on that. But um, good to see good to see them back in action. Yeah. That launch, I'll find footage for it and put it in the show notes if you haven't seen it. I think it boiled down to the motors they were using were like this new like or like this old stock motor that had been built decades before and they had modified and they're now using new motors on the rockets that have been huh. tested. So hopefully their their problems are behind them. Um, when we talk about that SpaceX failure like we did last time, this is an example where, you know, they, they had a failure for uh, Orbital ATK and they um it took them 2 years to figure mm-hmm. because you got to because you got to figure out what happened. And then you've got to make changes. And in the case of SpaceX, they've got a, on top of that, they've got a broken <laughs> launch site. So it's tough. It's tough when you have a failure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what is, uh, what's up next? Mars. Mars is next. I think as we're, as we're uh, releasing this episode, we, we talked about this before. Elon Musk is due on the 27th of September to talk about what SpaceX wants to do in terms of Mars exploration. Um, this is that thing that it's happening in Mexico, Guadalajara, at the International Astronautical Congress meeting. Um, and so as we, re- as we record and release this episode, it hasn't happened yet. But if you listen to this immediately uh, upon release, it- it's about to happen. So you should definitely you know, watch the skies, I guess, uh, see over <laughs> Mexico and see what, uh, watch out for that, what Elon Musk and SpaceX are going to announce. Uh, um, Lauren Grush at The Verge, who's been on this show, uh, had a nice preview where, uh, you know, the, this it's, it's what we know so far. And then the subhead is, it's not a lot. And actually I was impressed at how much we do know. She, she put together a lot. She's like sweeping together, like little things we know, about what SpaceX is planning in terms of the size of the rockets and the engine, and you know it's all hazy, um, and and uh, but still, I, I was impressed that uh, she was able to kind of like uh, put together more than I had really put together before. So I was really happy that she, I mean she just did a great job of of stuff that she you know she knows is already out there, but yet I I found new so i think she she's underselling that story uh, she did a good job but we'll we'll hear a lot more and i'm sure talk about it next time about what spacex is doing of course that spacex uh, launch failure has rapid unexpected disassembly um mm-hmm. has a has cast a pall over this a little bit because you know they can be as they can talk a good game about sending people into into space soon and people to Mars and not too long and sending new rockets to Mars soon. But, you know, they just had a, a complete failure of a basic, uh, you know, a basic orbital launch or not even a launch on the pad before doing an orbital launch. So it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they, they, uh, as always balance Elon Musk's ambition with, uh, the reality of their situation. Yeah, and we're talking 
this plan is years away. This is a vehicle after the Falcon Heavy, which is late and we still haven't seen. So this is not anything they're looking at flying in the next year. This is a ways off. So yeah, but they talk they talk like they're going to have this in yeah. in two or four years. Um, and that seems really unlikely to me. I love, I love the ambition of it, but like we've talked about previously with Musk, um, he, he, in all of his businesses, as much as we can credit him as a visionary and somebody who refuses to accept, uh, the, the sort of like standards of what you can and can't do. And that's benefit him, benefited him greatly. And it will continue to do so. He does tend to overestimate his ability to get stuff out the door in a timely fashion. And, you know, it's one of those things where maybe he, he should, uh, not to give Elon Musk any advice, but under-promising and over-delivering is not a bad approach. Scotty was great at it on the USS Enterprise, so I'd recommend <laughs> a little bit more about that if he could. That's great. Well, this week's episode of Liftoff is brought to you by our friends at HelpSpot. If you deal with any kind of customer support, you need HelpSpot. It's the most comprehensive and flexible help desk software around. With HelpSpot, customers can reach you however they choose. It can be by email, via the web, phone, it doesn't matter because HelpSpot becomes the central place for all your customer support needs. You can turn disjointed email exchanges into meaningful conversations with your customers. And something I really like is you can see quick trends of your tickets coming in. So if a problem is surfacing with your customers, you can get this real-time reporting to see exactly what's happening. HelpSpot can host all this for you, or you can host it on your own servers. You get source code access for custom branding, direct SQL access to write custom reports, and there's an extensive API and Zapier integration for connecting to your other systems. HelpSpot is able to easily manage customers that get a few requests a day all the way up to enterprise clients with 500 email mailboxes receiving millions of support emails. I got to say millions of support emails sounds like a nightmare, but no matter where yeah. you are or how big you grow, HelpSpot can lighten the burden of customer support. Their current customers include startups and Fortune 500 companies, span all sorts of different areas, IT departments, call centers, customer service groups across industries, software, banking, healthcare, education, transportation, you name it, HelpSpot is there. They've been doing this for more than 12 years and they're going to be there when you need them. HelpSpot is free for up to three users and super inexpensive for large teams. Better still, you'll get an additional 10% off for life when you use the code LIFTOFF when you sign up. So go to helpspot.com slash liftoff to start a trial today and sign up for a free one-on-one demo so you can learn more about HelpSpot and how it can boost your support team. Thank you so much to HelpSpot for sponsoring this show and all of Relay FM. So the rest of this episode is an interview uh, with uh, Natalie Battaglia. Now, she is uh, an astrophysicist at the NASA Ames Research Center. And uh, I was just down there not too many months ago, and I had this idea. I think I met her, but if not, I I definitely met some other people on the Kepler team. She is the mission scientist for the Kepler mission. Um, If you remember from our our episode about exoplanets uh, and the excitement that's going on in exoplanets right now with the exoplanet found around uh, Proxima Centauri, um, this Kepler has found more exoplanets, I believe, than any other instrument. And she has been with the Kepler mission since before it launched. She's not the longest serving Kepler scientist, but she is she's been there a very long time uh, following this mission, learning about exoplanets. And so um, I talked to her. Uh, not too long ago for this episode and asked her a bunch of questions about exoplanets and uh, past, present, and future. And so uh, let's let's bring her in. This is Natalie Battaglia. Thank you for being on Liftoff. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. No, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So you were, uh, if I'm reading this right, you've been at uh, Kepler since the beginning. So I wondered if you could maybe talk about how the mission got started at the at at right at there at the start, boy, and you're using the word beginning uh, very loosely. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, indeed, I you know I've been here for 16 years, so I I was here during the proposal writing phase of the mission, um, but Kepler was proposed five times. Wow! <laughs> so there was a lot of work that was done before I, even I entered the scene. I just had the fortune of being involved with that fifth proposal that was ultimately successful. 
Uh, but in, you know, in those early days, I mean, each time the proposal was denied or rejected, it was for a, a valid reason. And the PI of the mission, Bill Baruki, went back to the drawing board, took the criticisms in hand, and and you know, figured out how to respond to that criticism. You know, did some testing, showed that their concerns were were not justified, or or did some work or developed some technology that addressed their concern. So with the fifth proposal, one of the uh, key questions that the review previous review panel had asked was, uh, you know, these this transit method that you're using, observing these, uh, looking for these uh, dimmings of light that are periodic and indicative of an eclipse-like event or a planet transiting across the face of the star, aren't those going to be really difficult to see given the fact that stars like our sun have sunspots that also rotate in and out of view? Uh, so that was one of the things that I was involved in early on was tr- taking a critical look at what stars are doing in terms of their magnetic activity, which causes these sunspot-like features, um, you know, understanding how that changes with, with age, the age of the star and looking at the populations of stars in the galaxy and writing a section of that proposal that, uh, you know, showed that this is what we expect and this is why it's not a problem. So those are, those are just examples of the kinds of things that were going on. Uh, Bill had also gotten some money to build a technology uh, demonstration in a laboratory at Ames that demonstrated that the detectors were up to par, that the you know the software we could write to detect the signals to do that signal detection were also up to par, um, even in the face of this kind of noise, if you will, from the stars themselves. So all of that was kind of going on simultaneously and came together in that fifth proposal, which was ultimately selected. Now, when we think back that, what did you say, 16 years ago? That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so 2000. Yep. The, we think about exoplanets now and we think about thousands of exoplanets and we think of the transit method. Everybody sort of knows about it now because of Kepler, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, though... There were the exoplanets was not it, there was a sm- very small number that had been discovered and had any had anybody discovered them using the transit method before? Yeah, that's a great question because actually that's an important part of the story. In the in two thousand actually or between nineteen ninety nine and two thousand, uh, the very first transiting exoplanet was discovered. And this was HD two hundred nine four five eight. It was actually discovered by the radial velocity method, if I'm remembering correctly, but then was found to also be in the right geometry for a transit. Um, And so we also quickly observed it with our own ground-based telescopes and showed that we could detect it, we could see it. And just having that discovery, knowing that planets could be detected by this methodology, I think was important sociologically speaking with the review panel in evaluating the, you know, the the risk or the, uh, the worthiness of this proposal that was Kepler. So then you had to go through uh, presumably a fairly you know, fairly long phase to get the mission together and to get the spacecraft together and to get it launched. So how, how long did that period take? Yeah, well, you know, I think the mission was selected uh, maybe 2001, at the end of December of 2001 or thereabouts, and it didn't launch until 2009. All right. So that that design and development phase was actually quite extensive. It was, initially, it was supposed to launch earlier, but there were various delays that were put into, into place for reasons that were kind of outside of our control. Um, but yeah, we did finally launch in March of 2009. So the, the primary mission, and I know that there's now a secondary mission, which is really interesting but the primary mission the idea here is kepler is looking and you you know better than by far better than me so i'm going to ask you to to talk about this a little bit it's looking at a specific field and and the star is in it and and obviously it's trying to find these transits how big a field could, could that primary kepler mission see and how many stars was it trying to monitor yeah, we have a mosaic of detectors that sit at the back of a telescope, and they, they take a picture of the sky. Uh, and that picture on the sky is about the size of my outstretched hand. So if you were to hold up your your hand at arm's length, like a policeman saying, stop, 
You know, your your hand is about the size of the field of view projected onto the sky. So it's 100 square degrees. It actually captures about four and a half million stars from our galaxy alone. We don't analyze the data from all four and a half million stars. We spent a considerable amount of time before the mission even launched, I think a period of about four years it was, characterizing all of the stars in that handprint on the sky and learning about them so that we could cherry pick the ones that we really wanted to pay attention to. So we cherry picked about 150,000 stars. I think in the at the end of the day, we ended up observing about 190,000 total. These were stars for which planets were detectable and, and more so planets the size of Earth that could be potentially habitable were detectable. We wanted to focus on those types of stars that would yield the most science. So are you, is that all in the the uh, outstretched hand width or is the spacecraft um, moving around and uh, and and reorienting to various, uh, you know, uh, various views in order to get cover more ground? In the first four years of the mission, we stared at one patch of sky just tucked underneath the wing of, of Cygnus the Swan, um, kind of extended up towards the constellation of Lyra. So between Cygnus and Lyra is this patch of sky that Kepler observed. And, and you want to observe one patch of sky continuously for a long period of time if you're trying to detect planets like Earth in, in that you know, you've got something Earth-sized, basically Earth-sized, and in an Earth-like orbit around a G-type star. So with this methodology where we're looking for these periodic dimmings of light, in order to measure the orbital period of the planet, you have to catch multiple dimmings of light. And sen- which means years. Yeah, which means years. So we stared at this one patch of sky for four years, measuring the brightnesses of all, all 190,000 or so stars simultaneously once every 30 minutes without blinking as much as possible. Now, as much as possible, are there issues with the orientation of the spacecraft with regard to the Earth and the and the sun and the other parts of the solar system? Where where physically is the spacecraft sitting when it's doing this observation without blinking? Yeah, the, the spacecraft is in a heliocentric orbit. So it's not a geo, you know, uh, an Earth orbiting spacecraft. It's actually orbiting the sun. And it's doing so at a distance roughly equivalent to one astronomical unit. So the orbit orbital period of the spacecraft, I think, is something like 372 days, as opposed to the 365 days of our own Earth. So there are no issues. I mean, the reason we did this is so that there would be no issues with the Earth itself getting in the way, getting right? In the way. Yeah. So the spacecraft is able to point continuously at this field of view uh, without blinking. Now, we do occasionally have to blink. <laughs> um, there is one geometrical constraint that we have, and that's that we have these solar arrays that power the telescope on one side of the spacecraft. So as the spacecraft orbits the sun, it has to roll on its axis in order to keep the panels uh, pointed towards the sun just for power constraints. So uh, once every quarter, we do those rolls, and, and it takes a finite amount of time to accomplish that, you know, just hours, let's say, to accomplish that and to retain or return to our pointing and uh, achieve thermal stability that allows us to take these very high-precision measurements. Now, in terms of not blinking, how quickly does a transit occur? Because that's part of this, right, is that you can't, you can't look away because I would imagine that a transit, that little dip in light, is a very short phenomenon. Uh, it's short on cosmic timescales, yes. It's, on, it's hours. So hours. something like four hours to maybe 12 hours. If the Earth were transiting our own sun and you were observing it from a long distance away, it would last about 12 hours. So you're waiting a year, if you're, if you're far away looking at the sun trying to see Earth transit, you're waiting a year for that few-hour period where you get that evidence that it, it That's exists. right. You, you blink and you miss it. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Is geometry at work here? too, that, that we have to look at stars whose or the orbital plane of the planets is in line with our view of them, and that if they were inclined in some way, um, there might be planets there, but we wouldn't see them because they would never transit? That That's right. So the transit methodology relies on the fact that the planet crosses the disk of the star, and when in doing so, will cause this dimming of light. Uh, but the spin axis or, or the orbital plane axis of these planetary systems 
systems for all of these stars in the galaxy are randomly distributed, right? right? There's no preferential alignment of the orbital axes of planetary systems. And so what that means is that you have a very low probability of catching one in this exact alignment. That probability is something like 0.5%, so half of 1% up to at most maybe 10%. Um, the exact number depends on how big the star is and how far away the planet is from the star itself. Um, so you're talking a half of a percent to 10%. So what that means is you have to observe a lot of stars and monitor them to find these this few number, this small number of edge-on systems. See that—that's the part that amazes me. Is we 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 can get spoiled now in thinking of all of the uh, all of the exoplanets that Kepler has discovered. But it, th- this is out of a pool where you know that there's a large percentage of them that won't show anything just because you won't be lucky with the whether it's you know yeah. has transiting planets that you can see because of the angles. Right, exactly. You know, astronomy is filled with stories like that, where we take advantage of these, you know, ridiculous, uh, ridiculously improbable coincidences in nature. We take advantage of them in order to learn something important about physical properties of the universe. It, It also has really interesting implications, because what that means is for every one planet that we did detect, there are 10, 100, 200 others that we didn't detect simply because the stars weren't in that just right alignment. So I, I do want to talk to you about exoplanets in particular, but I, I think since we're talking about the spacecraft a little bit, I wanted to ask you about um, the K2 mission. So something, you had some equipment problems on the spacecraft that ended one mission, and then rather than it being sort of folding up your tent and going home, Kepler has been set off on essentially another mission to learn what it can given the, given the hardware problems. So could you talk a little bit about what happened to the spacecraft? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, one of the requirements in building this spacecraft is that it had to have very, very stable pointing. It had to keep those stars on the same exact pixels on our detectors that were measuring brightness. So not not only do they have to keep the, you got to keep your eyes open all the time, but you can't move. You can't move. (laughs) That's right. You can't blink. You can't move. No scratching. Yeah. So (laughs) what controls the pointing um, are, of course, fine guidance sensors, but also uh, what we call reaction wheels. They're like gyroscopes. So you can imagine the spacecraft can move or roll along four different or three different axes of rotation, right? And so you have one gyroscope for each of those three axes of rotation, and they control the pointing. And in fact, our spacecraft had four gyroscopes uh, available to do that job uh, to, in order to build in a little bit of redundancy. We had four instead of three. Well, good thing that we did because we lost one of them relatively early on. I think it was around 2011 that we lost one of them. It just it just grinded up, halted. It stopped rotating, stopped spinning. And so it lost its efficacy as a uh, you know pointing stability mechanism. Um, and then in 2013, in May of 2013, uh, we actually lost another one. And so now we only had two axes of rotation that were being controlled, and the third one was open loop. And so the spacecraft was going to rotate around that third axis of rotation uh, and would preclude us from doing any reasonable astronomy. And and so I guess it, it's uh, useful to say why is it that the spacecraft would move at all? I mean, after all, it's out in space, right? <laughs> what is it that's pushing on it? And the answer is can, is rather surprising to many people. What's pushing on it is the uh, light or radiation from the sun itself. Photons streaming out of the sun are actually exerting a little bit of a pressure on the spacecraft. It's tiny. It's really tiny, but there's nothing out in space, nothing else out in space to push on it um, except for gravity in a predictable way. Um, And so that radiation pressure is what's torquing the spacecraft. Wow. And so, yeah, at that point, uh, you know, we were almost ready to throw up our hands and call it quits. But the engineers at Ball Aerospace actually came up with a very clever plan to balance the torque on that third open loop axis of rotation. And what they did was they recognized that the spacecraft has an axis of symmetry that cuts right down the middle of the solar panels, which are used, you know, for power. 
Um, and so if you point the telescope with that axis of symmetry right along the photon current of the sun, you know, that photon stream, if you point the spacecraft with that axis of symmetry pointed upstream, then the pressure from that photon stream is going to be perfectly balanced on that third open, you know, loop axis of rotation. And so we could then use the other two reaction wheels to balance the other two axes of rotation. And then you would achieve, again, your your uh, pointing stability. And so that's what they did. Now, in order to accomplish that, though, that means that we had to move the telescope away from that region of sky, which was, you know, under the wing of Cygnus the Swan. Mm. So we weren't going to be able to observe the same stars that we had observed over those first four years. And so, you know, we were sad about that, of course. We wanted to keep observing them. But we actually opened up a window to new research. Uh, what we ended up doing is observing fields along what we call the ecliptic. This is the uh, part of the sky that uh, traces out the orbits of, of the Earth around the sun. And so uh, by, by way of pointing at fields along the ecliptic, now all of a sudden you've got a lot of really interesting science that you can do that's very varied. So, of course, we're going to – we have been looking for exoplanets and hundreds have been identified in this second life of Kepler, some really interesting exoplanets which we can talk about later. Um, but in addition, because we're looking along the ecliptic, we see near-Earth objects, we see asteroids, we see comets, we see solar system planets, we've observed Neptune and Uranus and Pluto, um, we can find supernovae, there's a, there's a field of view that cuts across the galactic bulge and we can do interesting science there, we can observe star clusters, uh, I mean there's just a, a huge array of science that's being accomplished in Kepler's second life. Now, at this point, your is the field of view moving? Uh, so we observe each field of view for about eighty some odd days. Oh, I see. And then, the, and then the telescope has to repoint simply because it would lose power if it didn't. Hmm. So it it has to adjust and keep the solar panels and that axis of symmetry pointed towards the sun. So if you're finding, so in terms of finding exoplanets with the 80-day window, you're finding planets that are close enough to their stars that they're able, you're able to see uh, transit information patterns happen in within an 80-day window. Yeah, it's not so much a question of distance. Um, it, it's a question of orbital period. If you're observing for only 80 days and you are demanding that you see, you know, Know, three transits, then the longest orbital period you're going to be able to pick out is like 20 some odd days. You're going to detect planets in short orbital periods and Kepler's laws of planetary motion tell us that that equates to a planet that's relatively close to its host star. Now for the stars that are classified as M dwarfs, these are cool stars, lower mass smaller radius than our own sun. The Goldilocks zone, where liquid water could exist on the surface of a star, is actually, you know, quite close to the star. That planet's going to have to cozy up next to the star in order to get the warmth required for water to to remain in a liquid state. And, and at those distances, uh, you do have a short orbital period. So scientists quickly recognized that these M-type stars were going to be very interesting uh, for, for Kepler. Uh, for K2, for Kepler's second life, which is called K2. And so there was a concerted effort to identify these cool M dwarf stars in each of the fields that Kepler would be observing. And so that's happened, and, and some very interesting planet candidates have come out of that. Uh, we have found some really interesting Goldilocks planets in uh, orbiting M-type stars that are relatively nearby to the Earth, actually. And this is very interesting because these are prime targets for follow-up characterization with the James Webb Space Telescope come 2018 when that instrument launches. Now, mentioning uh, the the very close habitable zone of these uh, of these uh, M dwarf stars, I I guess I should probably bring up Proxima Centauri B, which was oh, yeah. not found with. Kepler, but it was because it was actually found using the radial velocity method, which we talked about on our podcast a, a couple episodes ago. The idea that you're actually looking at the spectrum uh, of the star and seeing how it how it shifts, and right. knowing from that that it's getting tugged on by a by a companion. But that would be an example. Uh, Proxima B would be an example of this same sort of scenario you're describing, which is they're 
huddled in close to their parent star, but it is a, a habitable zone because the stars are so much cooler. Yes. So, for example, there's a K2 planet, K2-3, which is a very um, interesting analog uh, to Proxima b. Uh, there's another one that was also detected not by Kepler, but um, by another ground-based transit program. This is a star called TRAPPIST-1, and it it's about, I think, 40 light years away or so. Uh, and TRAPPIST-1 has a small planet in its habitable zone as well. And it's going to fall on one of the Kepler or K2 field of views coming up in what we call Campaign 12 uh, later this year. So we're going to have an opportunity to observe those transits of TRAPPIST-1b is the planet as well. So yeah, there's a there's a handful of these Goldilocks worlds that are both small and in the habitable zone orbiting cool M-type stars in Proxima b. I mean, ah. I mean, when you have a planet like that that's just 4.2 light years away, I mean, that is just tremendously exciting. Cuz so many of the of the exoplanets that Kepler has discovered and that we've discovered in general are kind of far away um, in the grand scheme of things. And then there's Proxima b, which is our closest companion. And Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You know, Kepler was ch- uh, selected as a statistical mission, you know, to take a census and do exoplanet demographics. Um, so we're observing this one kind of cone stretching out into the galaxy about 3,000 light years. So we're surveying all these stars, finding thousands of planets in order to, you know, deduce or determine what the fraction of stars that harbor certain types of planets is. And specifically, what we're really trying to calculate is the fraction of stars that harbor uh, potentially habitable Earth-sized planets. So Kepler is a statistical mission. Now, once you have that answer, you can design an instrument that finds all those that are closest to us. Uh, so Proxima is is an example of one that's, of course, I mean, you can't get any closer than the planet <laughs> Proxima b, right? It's orbiting the nearest star. Um, but in the future, we will design uh, direct imaging telescopes that will be launched into space that will survey, you know, all of the stars within like 100 light years in order to find all of the potentially habitable planets within that volume. And I say 100 light years, and that's informed basically by Kepler's results. You know, what is the fraction of stars that harbor potentially uh, habitable Earth-sized planets? I have so many follow-up questions to that, so I'm going to try to go, go through them quickly. One is <laughs> one is uh, to ask you about how Kepler and our exoplanet research in general informs our uh, thoughts about what uh, what solar systems, what planetary systems are like. I know that when initial observations were happening, the, the discovery of a lot of hot Jupiters happened, where it's very large planets, very close to stars, which we don't ha- we don't see in our own solar system. How has what uh, what we've learned about exoplanets in general and from Kepler in particular changed our view of what the possibilities are in terms of what what uh, systems look like? Because we only had the one yeah. before. I had no idea that nature was as, is as diverse as we found it to be. It seems every time we get a new piece of technology, we're just, you know, we, we, the veil is lifted and we see all of these new examples and, and learn so many new things. You mentioned the hot Jupiters. That was such a surprise. Uh, really transformed the way we think about planetary systems. Now we understand the dynamics, you know, the the dynamical nature of these planetary systems in their youth and how gravitational interactions both with, you know, between planets, but also as they interact with the disk from which they formed, those are important and they change things. Uh, planets migrate, they move around, there are dynamical interactions, they're tossed out of their planetary systems, etc. So that was a huge surprise from the hot Jupiter population. Um, Maybe a lesser known fact is that if you look at all of the planets that have been discovered now, and Kepler, of course, is the major player in that with over 4,000 planet candidates and over, you know, 2,000, almost 2,500 that have been confirmed, the, I can say that the most common planet known to humanity right now, in our, that is in our discovery sample, is a kind of planet we don't even have in our own solar system. These are the planets between the small terrestrial things like Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and then the outer gas giant things like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. So there's this whole region in between that's like, you know, one in one Earth radius out to four Earth radius, four times the size of Earth, 
we we loosely call them super earths or maybe sub neptunes for lack of better <laughs> right. descript more descriptive words right <laughs> Um, we don't have these planets in our own solar system, but yet they're the most common type of planets that, that are in our databases right now. So it's going to be very interesting over the next years, especially after JWST launches, to try and sort out what their compositions are, what they're actually like, what happens when you take a planet like Neptune, make it a little bit smaller, and you plunk it down at an Earth's orbit, you know, and you you radiate it. Do you get something like an ocean world, something that's completely covered in water? You know what? What's going to happen? What are their atmospheres like, et cetera? It does seem so. That, that's that. It does seem that Mike but, Brown and Constantine uh, Bachigan, when they uh, posited Planet Nine, one of the things that excited some people was that it might actually be a planet in that size class, which would be very exciting because we don't have that. I'm sure that's exactly what I tweeted. I'm like, ah, there's our super Earth. Yep. <laughs> if it's there, <laughs> we got, they're, they're, they're going to be looking for a few years trying to find it. But right. well, you mentioned ch- verification and checking your work, and that's part of this too, right? Is is trying to have other instruments or other methods confirm the existence of the exoplanet that you spotted using your your transit method. Is that right? Um, it's, yeah, I mean, you, there, there are ways to confirm planets uh, without the need for follow-up observations. In fact, most of the confirmed planets that Kepler has discovered have been validated by other means. Hmm. But, the, but follow-up observations are, are great for offering further characterization. I mean, what does Kepler measure? We measure the radius of the planet. The radius is related to how much light it's going to block out. So right. the amount of dimming of light is related to the radius. And then, of course, we measure the orbital period because they're repetitive, right? And the orbital period tells us something about the distance between the planet and the star so you know how much energy is landing on the surface from the parent star. So that's really all we, all we know from Kepler data. Um, to build up a more comprehensive picture, you want to know something about its mass. For example, if you've got mass and radius, now you can calculate mass divided by volume, which is average density. So now you know something about its composition, if it's rocky or if it has a large envelope like Neptune and Uranus or, you know, a big gaseous envelope like Jupiter and Saturn. So, so that gives you a, a more comprehensive picture of the planet. There are other things you can learn. Um, if you have something called astroseismology of the star itself, you can often find out what the angle is between the spin axis of the star and the, and the orbital axis of the planets themselves. That's something called obliquity. Hmm. And that's another interesting thing that allows you to build up a comprehensive picture. And ultimately, with the launch of telescopes like JWST, we'll be able to characterize the atmospheres of these planets. And that will tell you something about the geological outgassing and the surface gravity. And, you know, it'll help you to understand uh, the energetics, the temperature pressure profile, the climate. Um, so there's a whole host of really interesting and clever things that scientists have done to try and build up a more comprehensive picture of the planet, um, many in very surprising ways. You mentioned atmospheres and the James Webb Space Telescope. That is by direct observation? No, the James Webb Space Telescope wants to observe transiting planets because what happens when you have that special geometry, when the planet goes in front of the star, you have light from the star that's going to filter through the atmosphere that's hugging the limb of that planet, right? And and that light, that tiny amount of light that filters through the atmosphere uh, ends up having spectral fingerprints imprinted on it from the atmosphere itself. So if you can catch that light and spread it out into a spectrum, you can uh, see those fingerprints and uh, infer information about the composition of the atmosphere, its temperature, its pressure, etc. I see. So it's tra- it's still a, it's still a transit, but it, at a level of detail of observation that you can actually get a spectrum from the atmosphere of the transiting planet. That's right. Wow. What you're trying to do is isolate. <laughs> you're trying to isolate only those photons that are streaming through the atmosphere of the planet. And it's, I mean, it's crazy, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> a planet like Venus, for example, the scale height of a planet of an atmosphere of Venus is like five kilometers thick, right? I mean, that's nothing. <laughs> These things are very, very thin. And so JWST is going to try and isolate the photons that actually passed through that thin little layer. So let's talk about the future of all of this a little bit. Uh, first, since you are working on Kepler, what's the future of Kepler? How long is is uh, is K two continued expected to continue running? 
Yeah, well, actually, we're still analyzing the data from Kepler Prime as well. We are. We have one more mm. catalog release from the first four years of that of that uh, of the mission, and we are also producing a lot of data products that help that will allow scientists to transform the discovery population. So that is the planets that we've actually discovered to transform that into what the intrinsic population of planets out in the galaxy actually is. And we call that those occurrence rates. You know, what is the occurrence rate of a planet of a given size and orbital period, for example? So when we make that transformation, we call it like debiasing the sample, right? You're making a correction for the transit geometry, the fact that there are 200 others out there for every one that you detected and all that kind of stuff. So we're, we have one more year to finish out that work. And then the K2 part of it um, just got approval this year from NASA to operate for another three years. So, uh, you know, it is an aging spacecraft. Uh, Who knows what's going to happen over these next three years. But if everything's stable and healthy, we will continue to operate all the way up until the fuel runs out. Um, And so that period of time is expected to be uh, as much as three years, but probably a little bit less. So, so we'll just keep on going until until uh, we can't point the telescope <laughs> anymore. <laughs> You've been resilient up to now. Um, <laughs> so right. what? So it's. Uh, I think we could expect more of that. Um, what about other hardware? Uh, you've you've mentioned the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, is there other uh, hardware out there that you look at and say that's all that the that's going to be great for the future of exoplanet research, whether it's spacecraft or things on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the future is in direct imaging. You know, now that we know how common Earth-sized planets are, we want to go out and take actual pictures of them. When you can take a picture of a planet, what you're actually you're, what you're doing is you're catching all the photons that are bouncing over the entire surface. So, unlike what I described before, where you're, where James Webb, for example, is trying to isolate only those photons that stream through that very very narrow band of atmosphere that's hugging the planet, now you're catching all the photons that are bouncing off the entire surface. So there's just more of them and it's going to tell you more. And and it's also a very effective way of surveying all of the nearby stars and looking for which planets, you know, figuring out which planets are orbiting them. So the direct imaging telescopes are kind of in two classes. We've got the ground-based telescopes that are coming online in over the next 10, 20 years that are like 30 meter aperture sized telescopes. And then we've got the kind of 10 meter, maybe 10 to 15 meter class telescopes that we want to put into space to do the same thing. And they actually have very complementary goals. Um, the space-based telescope is going to be able to do direct imaging of Goldilocks planets orbiting stars like our sun. Uh, those habitable zones, those Goldilocks zones are further away from the star because the stars are brighter. And so you can resolve them and see them with a kind of 10 to 15 meter class telescope. But from the ground with these 30 meter telescopes, you have some hope of being able to resolve the habitable zone of a Goldilocks planet orbiting an M type star. In a small number of cases, we need really nearby planets in order to do this from the ground. But lo and behold, here we've got one, right? Proxima (laughs) B. I mean, so so we have hope of being being able to directly image Proxima B with one of these 30-meter class telescopes from the ground. So I'm really excited about that prospect. There's a meeting that's going to happen here in California in the south, uh, like Monterey area, uh, this month that's going to talk about those prospects. Um, And then uh, on the other hand, I'm also very excited about the space-based technology to do the same because in that case, we can survey all of the G-type stars within 100 light years. Hopefully, or we expect to find a few dozen Earth-sized planets in the Goldilocks zones of these pl- of these stars, um, and then we will be able to characterize their atmospheres and look for evidence of life, at least microbial life, uh, beyond the solar system. So that's something that we know how to do. I mean, that's something that can happen within the next 30 years, let's say. So maybe not in my lifetime, maybe my daughter's lifetime, uh, you know, we'll be able to actually know with certainty that there's life on other planets. 
because right now our direct imaging method it, it, you is has been very limited that the sort of stuff that's far out and that we have to block the light of that star which i know is incredibly difficult and so it's been a it's been a less fruitful method up to now than some of these other methods of finding that's right. exoplanets it's, yeah it's very technically challenging i mean the planet itself a planet like earth is 10 billion times fainter than the star it's orbiting so it's a, a really technically challenging problem it's like trying to see a firefly you know next to a lighthouse um, and so you do need the star suppression technology. Uh, we can do that in two ways. Uh, there's a coronagraph technology where you put a little disc in the optical path of your telescope in order to block out the light of the star in order to see that firefly next to the lighthouse. Um, or you can put a giant star shade, uh, you know, as another spacecraft that's some tens of thousands of kilometers away from your telescope to do the same. Both of those pathways are being explored yeah. and, and have actually already been implemented, as you've already alluded to. Some planets have been discovered by ground-based uh, uh, direct imaging methods using star suppression. But those planets are typically very far away from their host stars where the glare from the parent star is not as bright. And they're very large planets right. and they're very young planets. So they're reflecting a lot of light and they're hot, intrinsically hot. So they're emitting their own light. Mm. Both of those things make them very bright and easier to detect. So with current technology right now, at this moment in time, we wouldn't even be able to find a Jupiter analog let alone an Earth analog. So so we're not there yet. It requires larger telescopes with greater sensitivity. It's also going to require space-based technology. But, you know, we've we've done prototypes. So we, we know how to play this game. We just need to scale it up and push that sensitivity boundary. I one last question for you about about sort of the future of, of searching for exoplanets, which is are there are there new methods i mean we've talked about about direct imaging and and radio velocity and transits and i know that there are things like uh, gravitational lensing that have been used to discover exoplanets are there new ideas and methods of finding exoplanets coming down the pipe or is it really sort of like we've figured out what the methods are that are going to be fruitful and we just need to perfect them I would say the one method um, that hasn't been explored in great detail yet is called astrometry um, and, and before I say that, let me just also mention that microlensing is going to be very important. Around 2024, there's a spacecraft that's going to launch called WFIRST. And WFIRST is going to use that microlensing technique in order to do what Kepler did for the inner planetary systems. WFIRST is going to do for the outer planetary systems. Basically, demographics, you know, how common are those outer Jupiter size, Saturn size, even down to Earth size if they exist? How common are those planets, you know, out beyond the ice line, for example? So, but there, interestingly, there's this other technique called astrometry where you don't need to do star suppression. In fact, you, you stare at the star itself. Um, with very high resolution, and you look for um, spatial movement across the sky. And so it's kind of like the Doppler wobble method, in that it relies on the fact that the, you know, the star is getting yanked around by the planet, or this, I should say, the star orbits the planet, just like the planet orbits the star, they're both orbiting their common center of mass. And so you look for that motion directly by imaging. Um, and ironically, uh, once upon a time, there was a mission called SIM, the Space Interferometry Mission, that was going to do exactly that. This was right before Kepler was selected. And that effort was really ramping up. I mean, it looked like SIM was going to be the path forward for finding um, Earth-sized planets in the Goldilocks zone. Um, but then uh, I think it all it all just kind of came crashing down and Kepler emerged and was selected. And so it kind of got put on hold. I think at the time, you know, it was a kind of combination of things. One, Kepler emerged as a technique for finding these planets. But also, I think the technology development just wasn't quite there. 
So in the meantime, we've put, you know, we continue to put astrometry on the back burner, but who knows, it might emerge as our interferometry technology gets better and better. Maybe it'll emerge as a more viable path forward. But for the time being, we're really looking forward to more transit spectroscopy, uh, which is what I described that JWST will do. Right. Um, And then, of course, the direct imaging. I mean, that's what we're all just really excited about. I think that there's a very strong consensus in the exoplanet research community that direct imaging is the path forward. Well, this is all very exciting, and I I appreciate you taking the time. When I talk to people about astronomy, this is one of those things where, you know, so much of the astronomy we learn is settled business. When we're children, we learn about all the things that humanity has discovered. And exoplanets is one of those things where you can point not very long ago and say, we only thought about them theoretically. And here we are, Mm -hmm. not you know, a a couple decades later, and we know about thousands of just facts that there are planets that we can detect and it's it's so exciting to have come this way in our lifetimes to see this the the, the knowledge advance like this that that's so true and to feel our perspective changing you know when i was a graduate student um, i spent some time living in brazil and and my apartment was on a on a hillside overlooking the ocean and suspended over the ocean was Alpha and Beta Centauri and the Southern Cross. It was like the last thing I saw every night before going to bed. And, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was thinking, geez, I never, at that time, I never looked at Alpha Centauri and wondered if there was even a planet there. Um, but also around that time, I had the great fortune of going to my very first international conference, and it was the conference in Florence where Michel Mayor announced the first planet orbiting a normal star, 51 Peg B. Um, so, so that was like 1995. Now fast forward to 2010 or thereabouts, I'm here working on Kepler, and we're doing all these statistics, and we're examining all of these discoveries, and, and, and we're computing these occurrence rates. And then one night, I go out running at night. And I and I look up at the stars, and in that microsecond, I saw those pinpoints of lights not as stars, but as planetary systems. Because I knew from this information from Kepler that every star harbors at least one exoplanet. And so I just really in a profound, you know, I internalized that knowledge and and realized the the propensity for planets in our galaxy. Um, but, you know, it took a long time to to have that perspective change. Well, a long time. <laughs> it's all relative, right? <laughs> um, so so I kind of imagine as people learn about the Proxima B discovery and they, they learn about these Kepler statistics that it's going to take, you know, a comparable amount of time for it to really, for that new knowledge to really be internalized and for people to look at the galaxy in, a, in an entirely different way. Um, but I think it's tremendously exciting. Things are changing rapidly. And for every moment, that's the great thing about science, for every moment where we get to pat ourselves on the back about improving um, what we know about the universe, there are also those moments where we realize that it just asks more questions like, you know, those hot Jupiters and things like that. Where it's like, oh, it turns out we don't know how, how everything looks. We, uh, we, yeah, we, exactly. <laughs> we, our sample size is very small. There's always more questions, right? Now I want to know if there's life. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so, so when people look up at uh, at the stars at night and, you know, and they pause to think, okay, every star I'm looking at has at least one planet. You might also pause and wonder if there's somebody on that planet <laughs> looking back at you, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Liftoff. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Well, I think I think that does it for this week, Jason. A really enjoyable interview. Thank you yeah. for getting that done. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, yeah, it was. There's a there's a long story. Um, uh, we we were we were talking to NASA for a while about setting up the interview, and it happened. It, it ended up happening kind of fast, and so you couldn't be there for it. But I uh, I had a great time talking to her. She was she was uh, fantastic. I learned a lot. Um, a lot of details uh, about exoplanets and and where we go from here too, which is pretty cool. So I hope people liked it. So if you want to find show notes this week, links to stuff we've talked about, you can do it in your podcast app of choice or on the web at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 30. You can find Jason online. He writes sixcolors.com and is at jsnell on Twitter. You can find me at 512pixels.net or ismh on Twitter. You can get in touch with the show. You can send us feedback. There's an email link on that links page. You can get in touch on Twitter at Liftoff Podcast. Um, we're always checking in there to see if anybody has questions or, or topic ideas, especially for the explainer episode. It's a lot of fun to, to help answer some questions when we can. So 
Until the next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios.